Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, and I'm particularly tickled that we have this chance to talk with my friend, Michael Taft. Yeah, so today is going to be a fun episode, I think, as we're joined by both a longtime meditator and a longtime friend of yours and mine, as you said, Michael Taft. Michael is a meditation teacher, best-selling author, and neuroscience junkie. He's been practicing meditation for over 35 years and specializes in teaching secular, mindfulness-based practices. He's the author of several books, including The Mindful Geek and Non-Dualism, A Brief History of a Timeless Concept, and was also an early reader and editor of one of your books, Dad, Hardwiring Happiness. Michael's taught meditation at Google. He's worked on curriculum development for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And finally, he's the founding editor of the mindfulness meditation blog and podcast, Deconstructing Yourself. So I'd like to start, if you're okay with it, Michael, with a quick background on you for our listeners. And particularly, I'm wondering why you were drawn into meditation practice, particularly as a very secular person and having like a very secular orientation in your own life. I wasn't always a super secular person. I grew up with a lot of science and read a lot of science and, you know, did quite a bit of science in high school and university and so on. So I do have a science background to a certain extent, but uh, in my family, it was definitely very non-secular. So Mm -hmm. both a lot of Christianity and a lot of really wild out there stuff right under the surface. So it wasn't like visible, but you know, my mom was really super interested in everything like psychic powers and UFOs. And and so that was always being talked about and all that. So I wouldn't say that my initial take on the world was just science. If anything, it was the opposite. And and a huge part of my family Mm. back then was very engaged in Christian spirituality and now even more so. In my family, some people were going through some very serious mental health issues while I was a very small child, and that affected me in some pretty predictable and extremely unpleasant ways, so that by the time I was in high school, I was experiencing immobilizing anxiety attacks all the time, uh, which is really no fun. Mm. And Mm. in that sort of uh, 1970s Michigan-like middle-class world, we weren't just going to therapists. Ther- therapy was for crazy people, and it was—it just didn't exist. Mm. So I just was on my own, and uh, and I was reading and reading, and eventually, in some like magic book or something. This is what I mean. It was very non-secular. Reading some like Llewellyn book from the seventies. It's talking about astral projection or something. They mentioned how to do this progressive relaxation meditation. And so I was doing that and others, other things like that. And I noticed it helped me to overcome anxiety. And I also started doing some of my own, just working with my own head, just out of my own creativity. Like, why, why do I have anxiety? What's coming up? And seeing that it was about imagining the future beyond 24 hours from now. And so I just started... I just saw that on my own and started restricting, like if if I would feel anxiety coming up, making sure I was only thinking about the next 24 hours. 
And that was amazingly powerful between doing mm. these guided meditations and kind of working with my own head. I was able to overcome a lot of that anxiety. And then, you know, pain relief is a, is a very big motivator. So I was hooked, but hooked in a super non-secular way. Like, mm. let's do some astral projection and chakras and prayer and as mm. far out as it gets. Can you then kind of give us a summary of the next 30 years of uh, stuff you've done. I mean, one of the things that I've really enjoyed um, about you and I've learned a lot from you is just the freaking breadth of your own experience. Scholarly here, deep meditative there, just the whole kid and caboodle. Could you give us a quick summary? Uh, yeah, um, basically it boils down to um, a period of practically daily, large dose LSD use for like years. How old were you then? I was in college. Yeah. And, but we're talking, you know, massive amounts often for a long time and uh, actually had some very, very significant breakthroughs on that because I was using it partially recreationally, but also with a view to mm. having a breakthrough. And that, uh, so eventually I moved from, uh, out of college, I moved to Japan and was doing a bunch of meditation and uh, had a, quite a major LSD experience that really, unlike all, the, the other ones changed me, but this one, what, like nothing has ever been remotely the same from that day. Mm. It, it, it was a, a big one. And uh, I feel like that still was the most significant thing back then. And that was, I was probably 24. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was, I was already meditating a lot, but that really, really uh, got me much deeper into meditation. I was still in Japan doing a bunch of meditation, went to Zen temples and so on, but mainly on my own, hardcore. And then coming back to the States, continuing to do that, I eventually got involved in a Kundalini yoga tradition, not 3HO, not the turbans and so on, but, uh, but a Hindu tantric Kundalini tradition, very, very serious. Somewhere around the, the late 90s, and, and you have to picture that while I'm doing all this, I'm reading a lot from every tradition. I got involved because of working at Sounds True. I got involved with Shinzen because yeah. it, was, it was interesting of all the teachers that came through Sounds True. I was like, this is the one who's teaching all the stuff that I'm missing. Shinzen Young. Yeah. Yeah. Shinzen Young. Amazing guy. I love his work. I love him. He's an amazing being. What a what a weird, wonderful guy. But he just had the scholarly breadth and the linguistic background and the multicultural background and all that too. That I was like, that's the direction I've been going, and I not finding other people who who really have that kind of mind. So I started working with him, and because of the sounds true connection, the publishing connection between me and him. Uh, which I haven't fully unpacked here, but we had a publishing connection. I was able to talk to him every single day for years mm. and really, really get in there with lots of questions, lots of guidance. And that, because he is quite secular, that got me more and more secularized until somewhere in the early 2000s, I was working with my friend Peter Bauman, who's also you know, very secular. And we started just going to neuroscience conferences and talking to neuroscientists. And, and for a while there, I just went full secular, and, uh, <laughs> like maybe like seven years, just total. Let's just talk about the science. And I don't want to think about anything else. 
But now these days, it's backed way off where I, I'm, it's coming to a more balanced place where my sort of personal freakiness, like the magical weirdo side and the scientific materialist side can talk to each other really comfortably. So both of those things are okay for me. And I don't pretend that they blend because they don't, but they're, they're happy being separate individuals. That's really like exactly what I kind of want to ask you about here, Michael, because as people who listen to the podcast probably know pretty well at this point, I identify as like a very secular agnostic type of person where I relate to all of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast very much in a kind of psychological perspective. I talk a lot about Buddhist psychology and a lot less about like Buddhist mysticism or things like that. And Rick, also, as you know, Although, you know, he's very grounded in the brain, Captain Neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera, there is a big part of my dad's heart that is very into the out there and very into the, like, plausibly non-secular is maybe the way to put it. Like, out in outer space with the astral projection and everything. There's, there's a part of him that just, like, loves that whole part of everything. And I'm really curious, like, how that transition happened for you? Like, Because you were talking about some really wild stuff in your background, in terms of your family background with a, a very close relationship with the spiritual and the religious, and then into more of a movement and kind of secular mindfulness, and then maybe back to more of a healthy resting place. And was there something about the more spiritual part of things that you were, like, pushing back against? Was there something in that that you found really problematic relative to the more secular stuff or, you know, vice versa? I'm just kind of wondering how that progression took place. There was several transitions. One was into the more scientific, mm. mainly because, again, I do have a big background. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I've studied a lot of it at university more than most people who aren't scientists. And I really mm. tend to think that way in some situations. But especially going further and further into the Hindu tantric world and especially living in India and doing that. And, you know, year after year after year, I had kind of gone, let's say if one's personal personality and interests is a rainbow, I had gone more and more into just one color of that rainbow. Like it just got more and more just the blue channel or whatever. And so when I got around some people who were being more rational, more scientific, more linear, more logical, more evidence-based, it was like, oh, wow, that really feels good because the red channel or whatever, you know, another part of my personality was really missing that. Mm -hmm. And so it had been kind of neglected for so long that I just really went there. Mm -hmm. And it was like water in the desert. I mean, I just really needed to kind of ground everything in some <laughs> linear rationality. And that was about the time where I was first meeting you, Rick. And mm -hmm. as you remember, I was kind of reactive about it. Like, no, there is no, none of that crazy weird stuff. It's only science. It's only chemicals in your brain. And I would be kind of pushy about that uh, just because I, it's like, that was the, the balance that was required. And so it's only been, as I said, in the past few years where it's like, okay, now it's coming back because we, again, the whole spectrum of one's personality wants to be expressed. Mm. I don't think of these as different truths about the universe. I think of these as different models or mind states or ego states that I take on. 
just like sometimes you're at work and you're performing a, a role, or sometimes you're at home in relationship and you're performing a different role, and we don't find any problem with that. We can change roles. We can also change mind models or ego models about what's going on in order to just better get into certain experiences. I mean, if I'm going to do something that, let's say, is requiring a more let's say, materialist, rationalist kind of perspective, I'm going to enter that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing some particular meditation ritual or something, that's the wrong mood. And so I just move into this other mood. And so I don't think of them as competing truths because no map like that is ever true as far as I'm concerned. It's always only partially true. So they're not in competition. Rather, they're just different maps we take on for different expressions, different appropriate facility and so on. I have kind of two questions connected to this, if you're open to talking about it, because I'm just really curious in my own journey, which has a certain similarity to yours. I think that I was raised in a fairly secular environment and leaned more and more and more into scientific materialism as time went on and have, as I've gotten a little older, started to kind of fuss the borders of it maybe a little bit more. The first is that in the more spiritual aspects of your life, is there a part of the secular brain that is bothered by the lack of an evidence basis for some of it? Or is that just like a big shrug and and it's all comfortable inside of you? No, it's more that in all those years of doing all those practices and being in these other cultures and so on, mm. I've seen so much freaky shit. <laughs> <laughs> that usually it's the other way around. Like yeah. I'm bothered in the in the scientific materialist world by the lack of any explanation mm. for any of that because it's just I've personally experienced so much of it, and so many of the people that I know for decades have also experienced so much of it. Mm. After a while, it feels really ingenuine to consistently have to tell myself, oh, that was a hallucination. Oh, that was sure something happened there. But you're after a while, if you do that, watch yourself doing that enough times, you're like, clearly something's being left out of this story that is really important. And I'm not saying any of that constitutes proof, but it's on the other hand, it's really weird to always have to sort of pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, I think there's a default that says, oh, that's all it is. It's just the meat, rocks are hard, water's wet. When you're dead, you're dead. Well, that's a view. I got it. But that's a that view is it's axiomatic. It's made up. It's a choice. There's no ultimate proof for that view. And yet, for many people, I think that's their default view. And that's narrowing. It's restricting. And I think an ultimately scientific view is open to possibility. Yeah. And I feel like, well, number one, it's really important to notice that that's not necessarily somehow the truth of the universe. It is just a view. Yep. Now, it's backed up by a lot of evidence. But my point is just we can take on other views and it doesn't break the universe mm -hmm. and it doesn't break your mind. In fact, I find it's more schizophrenic to have to pretend one of those sides doesn't exist. Somehow this seems relevant to your work on deconstructing yourself, which I think probably includes deconstructing some of our 
our ideas about ourselves, the world, and even our ideas about ultimate reality and so forth. And could you talk more about what you mean by deconstructing yourself? The idea of deconstructing yourself includes everything from just simply noticing the most basic, simple things about your own psychology and beginning to rework that all the way down to deconstructing the entire sense of self, deconstructing sense of world, deconstructing sense of self and world, and everything in between, which is quite a range, right? Mm -hmm. And I ended up kind of really zeroing in on that aspect, because if we want to engage with others, engage with humans, animals, the world more directly, we begin to notice the main thing in our way is a forest, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll use a different metaphor, is like a, a tangle of concepts, <laughs> right? Yep. And, and that tangle of concepts is attached to another tangle of reactive emotion. Mm. And if that's in our way and it's invisible, we just know that we're having all these intense interactions and, or, and reactions and reactivity to stuff. But when we see it clearly, we begin to be able to deconstruct it and get that tangle out of the way. Now you, Rick, are a master of reconstruction, right? Like, oh, let's improve the tangle. And that's necessary too, because I don't think we can't walk around without models and of how to interact with people and stuff. So it's not like there's this mode where there's no models, except maybe on a meditation cushion with your eyes closed for a minute. I would I would contend that there's even some thin models there. But you know, so deconstruction is not enough. We also have to reconstruct. And so all your work on positive psychology and all that is about you know, and hardwiring happiness, all those things, that's reconstruction, right, of better models. Mm -hmm. But to me, we have to be able to see the thoughts and feelings that we're using to interact with self and world, and then be able to take those apart like tinker toys, mm -hmm. and then reassemble them in ways that are more skillful and lead to better outcomes for us and others. So that's what I mean by deconstructing yourself. That's really interesting. I mean, something that I've used your work for uh, and the work of other people is deconstructing the self, the self, this notion that there's a unified, enduring, independent entity inside, a somebody inside. So a lot of practices about, I remember going all the way back to reading uh, Alan Watts' book, The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. I was 1975. The book irritated me so much with its kind of strong argument that there actually is no entity inside. And I remember throwing it across the lawn because it pissed me <laughs> off and it frightened me. I was alarmed by it. <laughs> myself, my pseudo self, as it were, in my view, threw that darn thing across the lawn. So to me, there's there's a possibility in which we can deconstruct, we can tease apart, we can lighten up the grip of taking things personally while simultaneously, call it constructing, call it cultivating, call it growing, various skills, various wholesome qualities, various beneficial attitudes, various um, useful somatic markers in our body. We can definitely develop those things while well, in some sense developing greater insight into the 
fabricatedness and ultimately the emptiness of our conventional sense of me, myself, my precious. And so do you want to really go after the particular focus on deconstructing the self? Well, you're you're making a distinction that I'm not making, which is yeah. all the little all the schemas and little interactive uh -huh. uh, algorithms that we use is just the surface layer uh -huh. that deeper and deeper becomes what you're calling the self. But to me, it's all one system. There's our, the ways that we're interacting with others, but then there's the whole understanding of ourself and how we're quote like interacting with ourself and what that even is. Yeah. Right. And where we think we're coming from. One of the things I've gotten from you, Michael, really personally, is as we deconstruct or using the Buddhist metaphor, unknot, you know, we kind of tease apart the threads, disentangle. If we disentangle, we can become more aware of the space between the threads. Yes. What is between the threads? And mm -hmm. that can be really, really peaceful and useful really powerful and also then gives you, because there's space, because it's peaceful, because it opens up possibility, then that's what I'm calling reconstruction. We can actually understand that we do need a sense of self, not a self, but a sense of self, models of self to interact with the world and so on. Yeah, You can't walk around without one of those, even if at, at the deepest level you understand that it's a sock puppet and there's no hand inside, right? <laughs> uh, but still, we're making ever better sock puppets as part of the game. That's a fantastic metaphor, Michael. I'm absolutely going to steal it from you. I will attempt to remember to give appropriate attribution because, man, that was a really, really good one. And I think that like a lot of the tension that people experience sometimes when they go through this process of practice that gets them into ever increasing like contact with the fact that maybe there is no hand inside of the sock puppet, the motivation to improve the sock puppet starts to get kind of like airier and airier for a moment for people. And it can lead to, you know, a bit of a, I, I don't want to be melodramatic, but like kind of the classic dark night of the soul where it's like, well, if, if there isn't even a me, why should I care about improving me? Have you either gone through that experience yourself or seen people in that? And do you have any thoughts on it or kind of commentary around it? Sure, I've seen it very, very commonly. And in one way, it's a natural stage. You know, you've been believing yourself to be this concrete ego all along. When that fractures and dissolves and there's just space there, there's a moment of extreme disorientation or just before it really dissolves a moment of extreme fear where it's like, the, oh, the thing that's me is dissolving. Mm. So there's existential fear, which is acute. And that's where Dark Night of the Soul comes from. Even if the person is not aware of that existential fear, the hang, hanging on starts causing all the difficulties. And there can be, a for some people, some of the time, it's important that people hear those qualifiers for some people, some of the time, once it really does dissolve all the way, there can be a day or week or months or maybe a couple of years even where they're not as motivated because they can't find what to hang on to. They're, they were used to hanging on to the sense of an ego. Now that's dissolved. But what else is there? But, you know, this is just a phase. And I think that with a good teacher, that phase would be very short. No way would it be years. 
at best, it's like the end of a retreat. It goes on for a couple of weeks or something like that. I mean, at worst. Mm -hmm. And instead, you start to realize that that's still coming from the ego a little tiny bit, mm -hmm. looking yeah. for that kind of motivation to grab onto. And totally. it's like instead, it slightly further dissolving stuff just starts arising out of the emptiness, right? It's always been just arising out of the emptiness. And so we look and to see those surges of energy or a movement or whatever that are just coming out of the void. And that that begins a whole new way of being, uh, which can be extremely engaged, extremely active, very, very highly energized. Mm. So what you're describing is a real thing, but with good guidance, it should be short and not too bad. Yeah, I think if people have a tendency towards, let's say, um, having, I don't know what words to use around this, uh, but like, let's say their, their normal ego coherence is a little compromised to begin with, like, then these experiences can be longer and more difficult. Yeah, as you probably know, Willoughby Britton and others have done research on spiritual emergencies and mindfulness casualties, meditation retreat casualties, and so on. What do you think about all that? What do you think about that research? What do you think about the cautions related to it? How common is that an issue? Are the fears about it overstated? What are some things to be particularly aware of if a person has particular vulnerabilities? This is a gigantic topic, but I will say that what we don't have in the spiritual traditions that is probably important to include is some kind of, you know, psychological health pre-testing uh -huh. that would start to see, you know, hey, do you tend to have compromised ego type stuff going on? And if so, then your path of meditation would actually be different than what people who've got their problem is like they're all up inside their, you know, super solid ego should take, right? Those are different paths. And yet we don't do any of that kind of testing beforehand. Furthermore, there's not a lot of teachers that I have met anyway, who are really deeply informed about this and who really get it that one size of practice does not fit all. And that there's a whole lot of people who need to start with positives, like positive meditation, positive psychology stuff, ego reconstruction stuff first, before they start doing deconstructive type practices. Mm. And it may be the case that they never need to do deconstructive type practices because the ego is already, let's say, spacious enough on its own to not pathologize it. You know, they just have a very spacious <laughs> uh, system. So to me, this is just our, this overall question of, or phenomena of people having these kind of breakdowns and needing all this help is just a, a symptomatic of our entire culture of meditation not really being up to speed yet and sort of mm. just believing in a religious way that this or that meditation is the one true way. And, you know, like there's lots of centers where if you come, uh, they don't do any pre-testing, but if you come and start having a meltdown, they just kick you out, mm. you know, mm -hmm. you're out of here and there's no aftercare, there's no follow-up. They just don't want to get sued. So they just kick you out. And, yeah. you know, that's, 
just not going to fly in the future. We're going to have to, as a culture, learn to integrate all our psychological knowledge, which is vast, together with all these spiritual practices and start making them work together better. And I think that's going to cause, you know, it's going to, it's going to bruise some spiritual non-egos to, to really see that, <laughs> hey, we've got, to, we've got to upgrade what's going on here from the traditions. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Cueing off of that a little bit, one of the things that we've been talking about here, kind of unwittingly, like I didn't know that we were necessarily going to get into this when we started having this conversation, was about ego construction and ego dissolution. When your your sense of the self becomes a little bit more firmly moored versus less firmly moored, what that means, what it implies for a person, the challenges people can experience when going through that. 
And I don't know if this was a characteristic of your experience at all, but we've had people on the podcast in the past, um, Roger Walsh, who did some of the early research on psychedelics, Dr. David Yadin, who works at the Johns Hopkins Center right now for psychedelic sciences and psychedelic studies. And you described early intense experiences with LSD and how you had kind of an inflection point experience where from there, nothing was the same. In general, in those experiences, was there an ego aspect of it that that helped you with, whether like seeing the filminess of things or some sense of ego dissolution, or was it something else that you got out of that? All of that, mm. you know, it started out with some ability to see the ego as an object from the outside, like yeah. just right away, which is already a big deal, all the way to like total ego dissolution in a way that never reconstructed, right? I mean, there's there's mm. just a tremendous range that can happen there, but I've certainly experienced, I think, a lot of it. Outside of taking massive doses of LSD, which, you know, is a way in, of course, but like, are there practices that you've done with people to help them get a sense of the self as more constructed or seeing the self from the outside? Like, how do you help people into that if you do? Well, from different traditions, we have many different ways of digging into the deconstruction. So for example, if we're doing Theravada type practices, we're going to go in with Vipassana and look at, you know, for foundations of mindfulness, we're going to look at the body sensations, we're going to look at emotions, we're going to look at the mind, we're going to look at, you know, thinking and that's a kind of deconstruction. And then, of course, even the whole idea of the five skandhas is a kind of deconstructive process. So the whole model is deconstructing the self. And each level of that has a lot of practices we're doing to facilitate that deconstruction. But notice it's systematic. Like, okay, start with what it feels like to be in your body. Then go to what it feels like to have emotions. Then go to the thoughts. Then go to even deeper level of experience. And so we're using a particular kind of meditative tool there to kind of take the engine apart in this really almost mechanical way. So that's one direction. Another direction we can use is, let's say, unitive experiences of love and connection and to kind of dissolve the boundary of the ego in a very different way. Instead of this kind of like I'm in the garage with a bunch of tools and it's kind of cold and hard, this, this kind of warm, yummy, unitive thing dissolves boundaries and begins to deconstruct in a very different way. Mm. And then there's even practices that are around directly seeing the emptiness of self, which is kind of a, even a different way in, depending. It's still usually Buddhist, but like, let's say more of an essence tradition or Vajrayana tradition kind of way in, where we're going to start with emptiness. But then we start right away working with other aspects of self. So in other words, you start to see that you can, by taking on deity forms or doing various visualizations, you can be changing the self so much that you start to notice, hey, this is so changeable. What is there actually an essence there? And the teaching is saying, no, there's not, no, there's not. And so that's another way to deconstruct that is just noticing that all the aspects of selfhood from the surface of personality down to the core of identity, you can just change that out 
using these visualizations and stuff. And there's a whole bunch of other ways. So there's a lot of methods to go in and they're all really interesting as long as we know what we're doing. And we're very sensitive to the fact of whether the person is having a good time or not, or whether it's really destabilizing their life, which of course we don't want. We're going to finish up pretty soon, but I wanted to see if I could slip in maybe two questions before we're done that are kind of personal. One is, when you look back on everything you've done, on the one hand, I can really acknowledge the woven togetherness of it, the unification of it all, on the one hand. On the other hand, are there some key elements that really stand out for you when you look back on your own journey that have been particularly important principles, insights, ways of being, uh, maybe even ones that you might want to call out as a teacher that would be of value to others too. I can answer it a little personally as an example, and I'm not saying this would be for you. A key headline for me along the way was the fundamental notion that I could actually learn and grow and help myself in those ways. Like that itself was really useful being able to step back from my own mind and witness it and disengage from it and disidentify from it, super fundamental. Most recently over the last, I'd say, several decades, concentration practices have been really helpful around steadying the mind and appreciating some of the possibilities in deep meditative absorption, valuing emotionally positive experiences uh, as aids to practice in a larger context that is fundamentally unattached to them, but appreciating emotionally positive experiences as skillful means. And then I would say definitely um, recently uh, the value of love, the fundamental of love, and in some ways aided by you, Michael, last I'll just say an appreciation of the ground, really the, the ground of one's own being as the ground of all being. So those would be things I might call out for myself as important in my own journey. And I'm kind of asking you a question like that about your own. Yeah, so one thing I would start out with is to, um, and thank you for sharing that, that was very interesting. I'd start out by saying, ask for help. Mm. This is a huge principle. Uh, I'm one of those people that felt I had to do every single thing on my own. And it turns out that asking for help is not only necessary, but surprise, really helpful, really actually fun, brings you, at least for me, it brought me into, let's say, zones of discomfort that turned out to be really, really generative and positive and useful, you know? So asking for help, you don't know it all. Another one, and I, this is crucial, and you can't see it till you can see it, and that is understand that everything's a schema. I mean, you are looking at the world through lenses that are highly skewed all the time. If you think the lenses are clear and unskewed, that's a problem. And so it's very, very important to understand what lenses you're looking through and to really be able to see those all the time. And like I say, it's the sort of thing that you can't do until you can do, but once you can do it, you just realize that it was like you were completely operating inside. You were blind before. Mm. Not totally, but it's just so important to be able to understand the schemas you're working through, even very, very deep 
probably deeper than what that term usually means, but the fact that there's always lenses and um, being able to see that in yourself and what's your buy-in for these lenses? What's What emotions are holding them firm? What emotions are they mm. are keeping them in place? And so another thing is having a fearless commitment mm. to letting go of those you know, of the emotions that are holding stuff in place and being okay with the discomfort that comes up and the, and the not knowing and willing to be wrong. You know, in other words, a, a huge part of this is wanting to be right, wanting to be consistent, wanting to all that kind of stuff. And it's like total, a, a summary of everything I've said is total fearlessness with inconsistency. Yeah. <laughs> the, the different parts of your experience don't have to blend together in a seamless model of the world. They blend together as a story of your life, but that it's just really important to, to see what's there right now, authentically for you uh, in this moment. So, and then I would say, for me, it's always been about really deeply understanding that I don't know, mm. like total respect for the fact that I don't know. And because when we come into situations and come into experiences and come into spirituality, knowing a lot, it just all gets in the way. And mm. it gets in the way in a fundamental way. It blocks everything. And furthermore, it's not just some strategy like, oh, I pretend to not know, so I have better outcomes. It's like after a while you realize you really don't know. Hmm. Like, I don't know how the universe works. I mean, we might know some stuff about some parts of it, but deep, the deep universe? I mean, who knows? I definitely yep. know that I don't know that. And when I come into an experience pretending I know that, all I'm doing is getting in the way. And it's the same thing. You don't know what other people's experiences are. You don't even really know about a lot of your own deep experience. So there's, I would just say, this is a big one, just a deep and healthy abiding respect for your own not knowing, right? So these are a few that come up. Has resting in that not knowing always been very natural for you, Michael, or was that something that came over time? No, it's painful and scary and <laughs> yeah. difficult and, yeah, totally. and, and shameful and all kinds of stuff. We're supposed to know, and I'm an I'm a arrogant know-it-all to begin with, so I want to be the one that knows. And so it's really difficult, but over time, you just see mm. you it's like I remember being in chemistry class and, you know, you got to keep your lab bench clean and you got to keep all the glassware clean or it just fucks up the experiment. And it's the same thing. If I come into all these interactions knowing it's like there's a bunch of chemicals left all over the bench and the glassware and it just messes up the experiment. And so it's like you keep it as, as clean as possible. And so over time with just like in, in chemistry lab, after the 90th time that you've messed up your experiment, you realize you've got to keep it clean. And in the same way, it's like, oh, I've got to come into this just not knowing, or it's going to go wrong. But also, when I do it, it actually really helps. Things start to go much better. Are there things you do inside of your mind 
to make it easier to get there, to get to that place of entering with not knowing. And I and I asked this in a very real lived way for me, you know, as a as a fellow arrogant know-it-all, which is definitely my personal orientation. I can find it really challenging sometimes to relax around that. And I, I'm just wondering how that happened for you. Uh, just organically over the years, uh, I think psychedelics help tremendously, especially multiple psychedelics, because you really see your own mind, mm -hmm. again, as if from the outside, and you see that totally. thought constructions are thought constructions. Yeah. And you get it that thought constructions never equal reality. They're just like a gloss mm. or some kind of very rudimentary map of what we're trying to do. And so over time, then a combination of that, plus a lot of meditation on the deep emptiness of thought, plus just a lot of embarrassing experiences of mm. thinking I know and just not just totally being wrong eventually live that yeah, life yeah <laughs> yeah eventually there's this quality called humility that starts to creep in there and say hey arrogant know-it-all if you want to you know have a better experience why don't you just relax a little bit mm -hmm. and just open and let things be a little less uh constrained by that so those kinds of experiences uh, have contributed to this. I would say if I were attempting to do it on purpose right now, I would just go directly to the like ground of being type thing where it's like mm. the ground of being is fundamentally mysterious and unknowable. And that is actually a more pleasant experience than knowing. And it's also much more alive with possibility and relational capacity and so on. What do you mean by the ground of everything? Well, what do you mean by it? <laughs> you I don't it. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I would say, let, let's say um, something close to it is that vast spacious awareness that is not located anywhere and is itself empty and yet is knowing and loving. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Knowing, not meaning knowing something, but yeah. is uh, is conscious and awake and is loving. Mm. Yeah. Right. So that, but it's a fundam it's fundamentally a mystery, right? There's no way to ever really know what that is, mm. and yet connecting with that is so delicious. And so o over time, you just start to get into it. Feels better to be in the not knowing. Mm. You know, it starts to be more, like I say, creative, interactive, relational, loving. Mm. Possibilities open up instead of possibilities closing down. Mm. I think of that quote from, here we are in the Bay Area, all of us, and, you know, Suzuki Roshi from the Zen Center way back in his Zen Mind Beginner's Mind book just says, in the expert's mind, the possibilities are very few. In the, in the beginner's mind, everything is possible. Uh, he, he's just mm. talking directly to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we just go back to beginner's mind over and over and over again. And the possibilities just open up and it feels good. I've really enjoyed being with you as usual, Michael. Well, we always have a good time together, right? Yeah. And I, I don't even know if you'd be willing to kind of fit this question into your own frameworks, but I'll ask it anyway which is, I guess I just imagine you 
as a 10-year-old kid in the environment that you've alluded to, and I've known, I know a little bit more about personally for things you've said. And I just kind of, I know, obviously, it, it had to be the way it's been since it turned out to have been the way it's been in the unfolding of the universe, right, over the last 30-plus years since you were 10 years old. I just wonder, is there anything looking back or looking into that part of yourself right now that, gosh, would have been really helpful or would now even be really helpful for that part of you to know or that part of you back then to have known, that 10-year-old boy? Sure. I mean, uh, I would like him to know a lot of things, you know, but mainly I would like him to know about being protected and being safe and feeling connection and feeling deeply understood and those kind of things, you know? Yeah. Mm. The fact that there's love, I was very loved. So love wasn't an issue, but safety, protection, stability, being seen, Things like that would be really, really important for him to know about. My 10-year-old as well. (laughs) Michael, thanks so much for doing this with us today. It's been really lovely to talk with you. You too, Forrest. Thanks both of you for having me. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Taft, a longtime meditation practitioner and teacher and author and to us, maybe even a little bit more importantly, a friend of Rick's and mine. We began by talking about Michael's personal journey, and particularly his experience being raised in a family where there was a fair amount of spirituality that was floating around the space, and then moving over time into a more secular approach to mindfulness practice and the Buddhist traditions, before these days kind of starting to wander back toward the integration of more spirituality in his personal life and his view of the world more broadly. I was really interested in this because this kind of maps my experience as well. I've been a pretty, you know, straightforward secular materialist for most of my life. That's definitely still how I orient. But as time has gone on, I've leaned increasingly into a kind of agnosticism. As we talked about at the end, that don't know mind where you just recognize the underlying truth, which is that none of us really know what's going on here. And yes, some things have more evidence for them than others, and you always want to be a little bit careful about drawing broad hand waves like none of us really know what's going on here. But underneath it all, if we're asking real deep questions about the nature of self and the nature of the universe, you just get to a point where you got to kind of throw your hands up and recognize that there is an underlying uncertainty that's present in all of the assumptions that we have about the way that reality is and the way that reality works. We spent most of the conversation talking about deconstructing yourself, what it means to develop an increasing space between the self and our perception of the self, tuning in increasingly over time into the underlying reality that the self is constructed, that it is impermanent, that it is not some kind of unified essence that we can point to, to use Michael's wonderful phrase, that it's like a glove without a hand inside of it. And we might still want to improve the glove, improving the glove is really lovely, but we can also recognize the lack of the underlying hand. 
Toward the end of the conversation, Michael shared some of the things that have been really meaningful for him in his process, some of the recognitions of the world and the ways of seeing it that have helped him over time. One of the really central ones resonated for me very strongly, and it was ask for help. And then another one, recognize that you don't know and come into a increasing contact over time with the reality of our deep not knowingness. Much as Michael indicated, I'm kind of a recovering know-it-all. And that's a part of my personality that I know is really very present. I like to be the one who knows. I like to be the person who has a lot of confidence in their viewpoint, who feels confident in their answer, and who generally feels like they've got a pretty strong sense of what's going on around them. And I do think that there are ways in which that knowing has gotten in the way of my ability to truly take in new experiences, to open up a greater kind of flexibility toward new ways of being, new ways of holding the self even as time has gone on. And the more that I've embraced not knowing, the easier everything's gotten for me. So just selfishly, I was really glad that Michael kind of mentioned that and pointed that out as it was definitely very resonant for me in my personal process. That's it for today's episode of Being Well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you like the content that we talk about on the podcast, but you're also looking for a way to have a deeper relationship with Rick's work, he has a whole bunch of online courses and paid offerings. And listeners of the podcast can get 25% off any of those online courses if they enter the code BEINGWELL25 at checkout. I've also included a link to the course page in the description of today's episode. If you'd like to support us in other, maybe smaller ways, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Finally, if you're interested in following us on social media, I've included links to all of our platforms in the description of today's episode. And also, if you'd rather watch these episodes in the future rather than listen to them, I'm uploading just about all of them to my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. Once again, thanks so much for listening to Being Well, and until next time, hope you have a great week. Bye.